Thank you, Amy. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? It's a little, little chilly in here. So uh, thank you for being here. It is uh, truly a delight to gather with you all. And just so you know, you guys are like super Christians for being here on this cold day. So just, just, just want to declare that uh, from the pulpit. Just, just kidding. I mean, not that you aren't. Anyway, I should stop talking. But it is good to be with you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Reed. And I have the joy of getting to be a pastor here at Trinity Fellowship. And so uh, I'm going to take a moment just to pray for our time as we come to God's word. Uh, We come not just hearing uh, religious facts and spiritual musings. Uh, We hear from the word of God himself. And so we are dependent upon the spirit to lead us into truth. And so let us come to him in a posture of, of need and dependence in this time. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you are a God of revelation that you are a God that in your love you have not simply kept yourself as the unknowable, but you have beautifully and mysteriously made the unknowable knowable. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word that makes known to us who you are, makes known to us who we are and who we can be through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, what I ask in this time is that through your spirit, you would allow my words to be aligned with your word. And that whatever is said that is in accordance with your truth, would it be heard, would it be received, would it be delighted in, would it be trusted in and lived out? And if there is anything that I say that is not aligned with your truth, would it be forgotten and cast out? And so, Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we know not, would you teach us? And what we see not, would you show us through the power of your Spirit so that we might know and behold the beauty and the mystery of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, warm us, quite literally, uh, through the power of your word in this time. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, one thing that I've, I've really enjoyed doing on Sundays, I've kind of like stumbled into it, but it's really been helpful to me, is kind of beginning the sermon by talking to our kids. And I've really enjoyed it because it's actually helped me think about how do I take my sermon and kind of put it into kid form, making it clear. So, so kids, where are my kids at? Let me see them. Raise of hands. There, okay, we've got some kids here. I want to give you my, my kid version summary of this message, okay? So what we're going to talk about today is, well, maybe let me ask you this question. Do you guys still, I don't even know if people still do this in elementary school. Do you guys know what the Pledge of Allegiance is? The Pledge of Allegiance, do we, do we still do that in schools? I should know this, I really should. Uh, but like the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag? Okay, so like when I was a kid, I didn't know what a pledge was, I didn't know what allegiance meant, I knew what a flag was, I got that part down, but I didn't really know what this meant. And really what a pledge is, it's, it's like making a commitment, a vow, a devotion to someone or something. And so what we're gonna talk about today, so this is my kid summary, is what it means for us to pledge allegiance to Jesus. When you may not think of those words being associated with Jesus, we tend to think of pledge allegiance to the flag, which is fine, but like, but what does it mean for us to pledge allegiance to Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at today when we turn to this new book that we're looking at. It's not new, uh, it's not like a brand new book that just came out, the book of Acts in the New Testament. And so if you have a Bible, turn it open to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter one, and we're going to be looking at what does it mean to pledge allegiance to to Jesus. Now, because this is a new book that we're starting, I want to give just a very brief overview of what Acts is. 
If you're unfamiliar with it, Acts is the second part of Luke Acts. So the gospel writer Luke, he wrote the gospel of Luke. And then the second part of his massive work was the book of Acts. And they're meant to be read together. So Luke was a historian. He was also a physician. Uh, some believe he was also a musician of some kind. So kind of a, a modern, or kind of a renaissance man, if you will. And so Luke is writing the gospel of Luke to this guy named Theophilus. And he's writing to him to convince him of the truth of Jesus. And then when we turn to Acts... There's this very interesting phrase that verse 1 begins. It says, I wrote to you in my first volume, Theophilus, of all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the massive implication is that the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. And so the Gospel of Luke is all about Jesus, what he did and taught. The book of Acts is showing us how Jesus continues to teach and work in the world through his church. And Acts is a very unique kind of genre. Some people tend to read it as just history. And and while it does recount history from the first century church, it's also a history that is meant to convey particular points and truths. And so it's not totally history, but it's also not just narrative. It's kind of a historical narrative genre. And I was trying to think of a comparison, like what is a modern day example of this? And I think... You, like, don't, don't quote me on this, but I think the closest comparison would be uh, Hamilton the musical. And the reason I say this is because Hamilton, it's, it's a story rooted in historical facts. It's, it's based on the story of one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. But no one in their right mind would say, like, you should go listen to the musical to gain an understanding of U.S. history. It's not quite like a scholarly work per se, but it's still rooted in history. And and it tells stories and it has songs and repeated lyrics to convey particular points. In the same way, the book of Acts, it's rooted in history. But the stories that are being told are trying to convey particular themes and ideas about what it means to follow Jesus. And so Acts kind of functions like Hamilton the musical. Uh, it'd be interesting. Maybe somebody should come up with a musical for the book of Acts. That would be really fun. Uh, but one of the things that's very interesting about Acts is that there are particular themes woven throughout the book. And one of the main themes of Acts is learning how to follow Jesus between these temptations to divide ourselves either by tribalism, like kind of creating our own huddled group, or hierarchicalism, which is a fancy word for basically dividing people based on who is in charge, who has power over one another. And Acts is basically teaching us how do we follow Jesus between these two temptations. And in fact, uh, theologian Willie James Jennings, in his commentary on Acts, he describes this theme using the fancy words diaspora, which is kind of about being segregated, divided, and separated from other people, and also empire, the idea of power over other people. So listen to what Dr. Willie James Jennings says. He says, in Acts, we find faith caught between diaspora, dividing ourselves into these subgroups, and empire, people who have power over other people. Between those on the one side focused on survival and fixated on securing a future for their people, and on the other side those intoxicated with power and possibilities of empire and of building a world ordered by its financial, social, and political logics that claim to be the best possible way to bring stability and lasting peace. That's a a fancy way of saying there is a temptation and a tendency in the human condition to divide ourselves either by tribes, like 
we're going to protect ourselves and kind of separate ourselves from you, or to, to divide ourselves by power. I have power and authority over you, and you are beneath me. And what, what Acts is teaching us as Christians is how do we avoid falling into both of these traps? Acts teaches us how to not give in to the division of tribalism on one side or the dangers of hierarchicalism on the other side. And the way we do this, the way we seek to follow Jesus faithfully, is to challenge anything that we see in the culture as well as in the church if we see anything that doesn't align with Jesus and his kingdom. Part of what it means to be the church is to challenge the ways of the world that stand against Jesus, and especially when those ways creep into the church. Sometimes Christians are known for being critics of the world and the culture as if we aren't participants in making culture. But we have to also see that if anything in the world creeps into the church that is against Jesus and his ways, the church has a responsibility to challenge it. So what we're going to do, I want to walk through Acts chapter 1 and show us just a few things in these first 11 verses. So if you have your Bibles open, turn there. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I want to read this one more time here. So Luke says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, referring to the Gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day he was taken up after he had given instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them to, uh, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So again... The Gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach. And the focus is on his kingdom that is broken into this world and is beginning to have an influence in the world around us, spreading to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Then we come to verses 4 and 5. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, You have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Now, the thing to point out in this passage is that Jesus is saying, look, don't leave because I'm going to send you a power, a person in the person of the Holy Spirit that will equip you for this work. It's Jesus' way of saying, look, the work that you are about to do in starting the church, this movement that will transform the world, this work is not a work that you do by yourself or of yourself. It is dependent upon the presence and the power of the Spirit. And so do not leave going off trying to launch the church in your own strength and power. Wait for the Holy Spirit that does this work through you. This is a major theme throughout the book of Acts. A dependency upon the Holy Spirit as the one who works through us. Then we come to verse 6, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on this here in a second, but I want to just give a little attention to it. Verse 6 says this, And so when they, had when they had come together, referring to the disciples, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Now, like I said, we'll take a minute to look at this here in a second, but basically what's happening here, the disciples, as great as they've been, like they've witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And they continually would make mistakes and miss things in the Gospels. But in this moment, they are still thinking about the kingdom of Jesus in a very small way. They're, they're, they seem to be so wrapped up with what is Jesus going to do for their kingdom, their nation, the nation of Israel. And they're just not getting it. Now, does Jesus care about Israel? Absolutely. 
But he cares about all nations. That, that's the whole point of the gospel of the kingdom. And so it's, it's kind of like what the disciples are doing here. I was trying to think of an analogy. So I'm going to speak to our kids again here. It would be like if your family told you we're going to Disney World, okay? And you're taking this wonderful road trip to Disney World. And imagine at some point you do something during the road trip that uh, gets you in trouble. And so you lose a toy or a device or something like that. And your parents say you can get it back later. And, you, and they say you'll get it back when we get to Disney World. Now, when you say, like, so, so I can get it when I get to Disney World? Like, I can have my device back? Like, your parents might be like, well, yeah, but, like, we're going to Disney World. Like, why do you care about your Legos or your iPad or whatever? We're going to Disney World. You're so focused on your own little toy. Don't worry about that. We're going to Disney World. In the same way, the disciples, when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And they're like, yeah, 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 but, but what about our country? What about our nation? The disciples are thinking way too narrowly when it comes to the kingdom of Jesus. And so then Jesus says to them in verse 7 and 8, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is like, look, you're, you're too focused on your own ideas of what the kingdom is. And Jesus basically sums up uh, his teaching in this way. He says, look, God is sovereign. You are to be my faithful witnesses in the world, and the gospel is for all peoples. Th these two verses in 7 and 8, they're basically, many scholars have pointed out, this is basically the summary statement of all of Acts. Or, or if Acts were a movie, this would be the theatrical trailer giving you a preview of what Acts is all about. And then Jesus makes this very clear that what they are to witness, what they are to declare as they spread this message, is the truth that he is king. And we see that in what happens in verses 9 through 11. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Now what this means, this, this moment of Jesus ascending to heaven, it's actually something that we, as, particularly as Protestant Christians, we don't give a lot of attention to. It's referred to as the ascension. It's when Jesus goes to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, which just kind of sounds like, like religious mumbo-jumbo. But really what it is, it's a declaration that Jesus is still king and that he still reigns. And it's, something, it's a part of the gospel message that we tend to downplay. But it's actually one of the most relevant parts of the gospel because what it says is that Jesus is still king. That he didn't just die for our sins way back when, but that he is still king over all of creation. And that should change the way in which we see him and follow him. There's a theologian by the name of Matthew Bates, and he wrote this very interesting and provocative book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. It's a fascinating book, but he says this in talking about this act of Jesus raising to heaven. He says, we need to recover Jesus' kingship as a central non-negotiable of the gospel. Jesus' reign as Lord of heaven and earth fundamentally determines the meaning of faith 
as allegiance in relation to salvation. Jesus as king is the primary object toward which our saving faith, that is, our saving allegiance, is directed. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is king, and he makes that clear and possible through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, as I'm saying this, you're probably like, this just seems like boring, like unnecessary theology. But, but this is not just about having right doctrine. The reason this is important, the reason I'm giving attention to this now is because if we don't fundamentally believe that Jesus is king now, we will entirely miss out on what it means to follow him. That Jesus is not just savior, but that he is king together with his saving power. And so to follow Jesus, that means we are witnesses who live their lives differently in light of what they are witnesses to. Namely, the fact that Jesus is king. And so I, I kind of saved my, my one big idea towards the end of this message here, but I want to I give it now. If there's one thing to take from our time, to remember from this passage, it's this, is that we bear witness by pledging allegiance. We bear witness by pledging allegiance. Jesus declares that we are to be his witnesses throughout all the earth. And, and what is a witness? A witness is not the defense attorney trying to persuade and convince somebody and trying to argue their case. A witness is just simply declaring what they have seen and heard. They are testifying to someone, something or particularly someone. And so, yes, should Christians give thoughtful responses to questions or objections that people have about the Christian faith? Absolutely. But fundamentally, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be a witness to him, to declare that he is king over all the earth, and that if he is king, it means that others are not. As David said when we read the, the Apostles' Creed together, the Apostles' Creed is a declaration that says that Jesus is king and simultaneously means that others are not. To bear witness to Jesus means that we pledge allegiance to him as king. It's not just that we give intellectual assent to him. It's not just that we believe in a certain set of doctrines. It's that we believe that he is king. And I believe the best way we declare and bear witness to Jesus is by living as if he is king. And by pledging our allegiance fully to him, not simply just checking a box and agreeing with a certain list of doctrines. But when we think about our day-to-day -day and what it means to bear witness to Jesus, I think that there are some hurdles to bearing witness to him. And, and there are many reasons for this. I think there are a lot of reasons why people have a hard time believing in the gospel. And, 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 and so much of it, I think, does kind of fall on the fact that, like, I, I think that the church is not being as faithful to Jesus as, as we could be. When we think about bearing witness to Jesus, I think some of the hurdles that stand in the way of other people knowing and seeing Jesus is the fact that, that the church has kind of confused and muddied and misplaced her allegiances. That we say one thing about Jesus being king, but live as though he isn't. And so when, when, Jesus, when Jesus challenges uh, the disciples in verse 6, I think it's an important message for us to consider, and that's what I want to give the rest of our time to just briefly here. What does it mean to bear witness by pledging allegiance? 
As I said, this, this is a term that we are, we're familiar with, with in our country of pledging the allegiance to the, the flag. And I want to be very careful. I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. But we do have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to first pledge allegiance to Jesus above all things? The problem is, isn't so much that we don't know how to pledge allegiance to Jesus. It's that we tend to functionally pledge allegiance to other things and place them above God or on the same level as God. And that's kind of what is happening in verse 6. So if you have your Bible, again, look at verse 6 again. And I just want to kind of end the rest of our time here. It says, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? And so they're asking the right question. Jesus, are you going to bring your kingdom? They're asking the right question, but they have the wrong scope. They're only interested in their own nation and not all nations. The, the disciples, I mean, in some way, this is a bit tongue-in-cheek, so I'm giving, giving you a little bit of a precursor here. But, like, the disciples are basically saying, Jesus, are you going to make Israel great again? Like, that's kind of what they're asking. Like, are you going to make this nation great again? It's like, yes, but, like, that's not the point. The point isn't just your nation. The point is that the gospel has come for all peoples. Quit thinking so narrowly and myopically and self-centeredly. The gospel is meant to be bigger than our own personal interests. And so Jesus is not concerned about any specific nation having unique power or privilege or position over any other nation because the whole point of the gospel is that the, the salvation has come for all nations. And if we miss that, we will miss the scope of the gospel of Christ. And so yes, we bear witness by pledging allegiance but if you flip that around, we also compromise our witness when we conflate our allegiance. We bear witness by pledging allegiance, but we compromise our witness when we conflate our allegiance. And what I mean by that is that when we take our allegiance to Jesus and mix it with something else or take something else and place it above Jesus without even realizing it. And, and, and this is something that I think is really important for us to pay attention to because this is true of every culture. Every human has a tendency to place something above God or to mix their love for something with God. And that can be rather dangerous. And, and while this is a conversation for another time, but like this is, you've probably heard the term Christian nationalism. It's a very interesting phrase and concept, but the idea is basically this, is that when you take your love for God and your love for country and you mix them together to where they're one and the same, and, and that can be rather dangerous. It's really idolatry. And this is true of every nation, so, and, and there's a spectrum of this for sure, because what I don't want to paint the picture of is this. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be patriotic. I'm not saying it's wrong to love your nation. We should absolutely love our nation and have patriotism. But it is when we conflate our love for country and our love for God as one and the same, that is where there's danger. Theologian Patrick Schreiner kind of gives this broad spectrum. And he talks about, I think I have this picture here, of the good, the bad, and the ugly of this. The good side of this is that, look, the idea of, of kind of blending love for country and God, the good side is this. If there is influence of Christianity in American civil life, that's a good thing. To see the church's influence in our culture, that should be a good thing. The bad version of that is when there is a fusion 
a fusion of Christianity and American civil life, when they kind of become one and the same. And they are not. The gospel challenges many things in every culture, as well as champions things in every culture. But to say and to believe that our love for country and love for God are one and the same is a very dangerous place to be. And then the ugly version is when that fusing together of God and country uh, takes place in the form of dominion or power or conquering. And we need to be careful and on guard against So Again, like you might hear this like, I have no temptation to do this per se. But like all humans, we have a tendency to take a good thing and elevate it to an ultimate thing. And that happens across the board. And so what we need to pay attention to is, are we finding ourselves slipping into a way of taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing? And when Jesus is confronting the disciples in their love for their country and seeing that the kingdom of God is just one and the same, Jesus challenges them on that. I mentioned uh, Willie James Jennings, and in his commentary on Acts, he, he talks about, the da- on this passage, he talks about the dangers of this, and he says this. Should disciples of Jesus love their nation, the one that they claim and are claimed by? And he says, well, this is the wrong question. The question we are compelled to ask and answer by our lives is, how might we show the love of God for all peoples? A love that cannot be contained by any nation. A love that slices through the borders and boundaries and reaches into every people group, every clan, every tribe, every family. The love of God exposes our modern nations for what they are. Simple fabricated containers for the rich multiplicity of peoples who each and every one are beloved creatures of the Creator God. What this is saying, what it is not saying is that we should have no care or concern for our country. But if we are to follow Jesus faithfully as citizens of a country of earth, we need to learn how to properly order our allegiances. And as followers of Jesus, we pledge our allegiance to Jesus first and foremost. And again, this is not to say that we cannot love our country, be patriotic, or be emotional on the 4th of July. By all means, enjoy and celebrate the good things of our nation. The question that we should always be asking is, are we at risk of blending love of God and love of country as one? We bear witness by pledging allegiance, and we compromise our witness when we conflate our allegiance. And this happens not just with love of country. It can happen with anything, with love of money. When you take the love of money and disproportionately place it above Jesus, you have the prosperity gospel, blessings over the blesser. When you take love of comfort, you have cheap grace, where you basically have forgiveness. I like the idea of being forgiven, but there's no need for me to be faithful and devoted to Jesus. My love of liberty and personal freedom produces this expressive individualism where you have personal choice over holy submission. Love of justice can produce a distorted social gospel that says justice is more important than the judge himself. Or, or your, even love of theology. A love of theology can produce a hypocrisy where you're more interested in information over formation. Do you see how taking a good thing and placing it in an ultimate category distorts the true gospel? And so how do we practice this? How do we bear witness by pledging allegiance to Jesus? And I will close with this. Earlier in the service, uh, David read for us the Apostles' Creed. 
And, and what he shared was that creeds functioned as a bold and subversive statement that both champions the kingdom of Jesus and challenges the kingdoms of earth. And so if we are to take Jesus seriously, if we are to take following him seriously, it means that we must pledge allegiance to him as king before we pledge allegiance to anything else and to make a clear distinction between those things. And so as you walked in, um, our wonderful ushers, Pearl and Eddie, they were handing out the Apostles' Creed, copies of the Apostles' Creed. And what I would encourage you to do, this is not legalistic or ritualistic, but what I'm saying is a practice for us to put into play of how we pledge allegiance to Jesus is to recite the, the Apostles' Creed. And so keep this with you. This could be just a practice if you want to do it personally, if you want to memorize it or turn it into a one-act play, whatever you want to do. But, but find some way to commit it to memory or share it not just by reciting what we believe, but by subversively declaring that Jesus is King. And so keep this with you. One thing I will point out, there was a bit of a typo. Uh, there's a lot of debate about what it means that Jesus descended to uh, the, the place of the dead or to hell. We, we had hell on here. I meant to be the place of the dead. Forgive me for that typo. But we kind of, that's a whole other debate. I'll talk about it later. But, uh, but all that in mind, keep this Apostles' Creed with you and find some way to confess it and declare it together. I love what Dr. Carolyn Moore says. She's author, pastor, says this. If this idea of Jesus as life-giving, sin-defeating, redeemer of the universe is true, then when we confess that publicly and vocally through the creeds, we are participating in a divine conspiracy to alter the course of the world. That is absolutely what we do when we declare that Jesus is king. If we desire to see others come to Jesus and to find life in him through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, then we need to see ourselves bearing witness to that truth by pledging allegiance to him above all else and second to none. As we will sing in a moment, you have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever, God, your reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, what, what I ask in this moment is that by your spirit, you would, you would do a work in us. Lord, before, before we begin to look out, I, I ask that you would just forgive me even in my impassioned critique of, of those people, whoever they might be, who conflate love of whatever with the love of you. Lord, forgive me for not first placing myself under that word of warning and exhortation. So Lord, before we think about other people who need to hear this message, Lord, would you grant us through your spirit the conviction to assess in our own lives and hearts, individually and collectively as a church, where we are guilty of conflating our love for whatever with our love for you. Lord, may it, be, may it be so of us that we clearly have a separation between our allegiance to you, Jesus, as King, before we give any of our devotion to something else. Lord, may you, being King over all creation, properly order our loves, our affections, our devotion and allegiance, so that we might properly, faithfully, and fruitfully bear witness to the fact that Jesus, the risen Christ, is in fact king over all creation. That is good news for all peoples. And so, Lord, do this work in us that we might be found to be faithful witnesses to what we have seen and heard through Jesus as king of all. I pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.
I'm going to invite my friend Michael up to lead us in our confession.